Welcome to the Programmatic Digest, a podcast dedicated to review industry headlines and trends in the programmatic and digital ad tech world. I'm Ellen Parker, your host and Chief Programmatic Sensei of Ellen Parker Consulting, where we offer customizable training in programmatic media. This podcast has been sponsored by WorkReduce. If you want to reimagine how to work in advertising, check them out at workreduce.com forward slash careers. All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Sunset's Corner, Ali. How are you doing today? Hey, good. How are you, I am so excited. I'm such a big fan of Chalice. And so um, we came across a post on LinkedIn, which is, I think, very, very, um, very Chalice-like, because that's how I came across uh, Adam. Well, he came across one of my posts and called me out on Excel, because I was joking (laughs) about Excel being such the best, like the 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 neat, like bay. This is what I said, and he was like, "Well, actually, this is the right, no, the right, the right way to do it." I was like, "Yes, you're right. I was joking. I'm sorry." Um, <laughs> and then you posted something about, uh, you know, talent, and then the burnout, the new B word, which is the bur- burnout now. So, looking forward to have this conversation with you today on the podcast. Before we get into today's conversation, though. Can you introduce yourself as you're known for being the Rick Rubin of Chalice? Nice. Yeah. So I, um, Allie, the Rick Rubin of Chalice, not to be confused with Rick Ross and Bob Ross and Diana Ross. Yeah. Um, So, you know, my understanding is Rick Rubin was like a little bit behind the scenes, making sure things got done, that like magic happened by, you know, bringing this and that together to make you know, the Beastie Boys and Public Enemy, like, transformational for our culture. So that's like way overstating um, me, but I'm I'm the chief operating officer. And um, that wears all kinds of hats. So I'm in charge of like, the things that you would think about operationally, like finances, um, HR, and um, investment, investor relations. And then... um, and then really our sales go to market. So go to market, broadly speaking, marketing, sales, Got it. and um, yeah, growing, growing our business and our customer footprint. That is super cool. Uh, I had to look up who Rick Rubin was right before the call, y'all. <laughs> so if you're listening, you don't know, he is, um, he used to be what, the co-founder or the CEO of Columbia Records. Yep. Um, yeah. He's sort co-founder. of. hmm yeah, some people say he was, you know, one of the founders of hip hop. Not an artist himself, but you know, yeah. one of the people behind the artists. Yeah, he's a co-founder of Def Jam's uh, Def Jam record rec- recording. Sorry, so um, so that's really cool, re- really cool to to know. Also, he's the I think he's considered like the right hand or right arm of Russell Simmons. Uh, so everybody knows Russell Simmons. So thank you, thank you for enlightening us on hip hop today. Uh, the same with Adam's interview. I was very, <laughs> I had to ask about the Wu-Tang Clan, so I Googled it as well. But um, I love I love the conversation we're going to have because you shared on LinkedIn a post about the burnout, like what was happening in the industry. Um, I really want to pick your brains on, on your point of view, but I'd love to understand a little bit of how you got to Chalice, like a little bit of your background and your your career, your journey, and especially as a woman, um, when diversity, equity, and inclusion is like sexy uh, to the industry, um, what I'd love to uh, understand your journey. 
Yeah, sure. So yeah, so I started um, Pubside in digital media at the Atlantic Monthly um, and was like, like, was educating the CEO at the time on what a CPM was, right? Like in digital, you charge and on impressions, the number of impressions, you don't charge like a flat fee like you do for a magazine page. Um, that was a good like first job. It was in DC though. I really wanted to be in New York. And I um, was reading the New York Times, which mentioned Razorfish as one of the top digital advertising agencies. It was like, that's what I want to do. I want to be on the leading edge of this, not the like, you know, caboose on the train sort of getting dragged along. So um, I applied online to Razorfish, um, got the call um, and ended up there for a couple of years. Like that was um, a time when Razorfish was just killing it. Um, I worked with like incredible people. I made mistakes. I, I like to talk to our employees about how in one of my first months at Razorfish, I had to traffic ad tags and I left out like a semicolon and cost um, and the t- at the time it was Capital One. So we set all these search ad slides for Capital One before a holiday yeah. weekend. We come back in and spent $30,000 and all the links were going to blank pages because I... Oh, Lord. I've done that. I've done that with... Um, <laughs> it was a grocery store brand, a national one. And I forgot to turn on the ads in CM360. So every ad ops listening, they'll know what I'm talking about. In CM360, the placement was live. The creative was live, but the ad was still inactive. And we oh. went to a holiday and served over a million impressions. Oh. And that gro- grocery that was impression-based, we had to pay back the client like close to 5K or I think a little bit more in make big good like they didn't want they didn't want no make good campaign they were like just just give us that that budget back so that was stuck yeah 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 so this yeah it sucks yeah, right tell you. yeah tell you. thirty thousand dollar mistake which was probably like more than half my salary at the time so i was yeah. like sure thought i'd be fired um i wasn't <laughs> um actually adam heimlich who was working with at the time who was like yeah. this is totally recoverable. It's all about how you handle it from here. Mm-hmm. Right. It's so like take responsibility. And then I created the most like buttoned up QA process that that company had ever seen. <laughs> you know, we trained I did it. too after that. I did. Right. Like it was right? a checklist saying we got to do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. But also, I mean, this gets back to the social post. I know you want to come back to like, yes. I was also I had this experience of like, I'm just like, you know, you know, I was young in my early twenties, like I'm so brilliant. I just came out of college with this amazing degree in GPA. And now I'm, excuse me, now I'm freaking like merging columns together. Right. And like forgetting a semicolon. And that's a huge mistake that could cost me my career. Like there was such a um, disjointedness of like, I joined this amazing on the bleeding edge agency. I'm like smart and hungry and strategic and I'm like in Excel all day, like merging things together in this detail work that I'm usually really good at. But if you are 99% good at, sometimes that 1% is a $30,000 mistake. Um, so yeah, so, so we'll talk more about that, right? Like I think what's interesting is now we work with some teams on the agencies 
Um, we actually worked with this team and they were really proud of their pro- like process. They were like, oh no, we have everything automated. And then when we talked more about what they had automated, it was like, yeah, you just pull six reports from the DSPs, you paste them into the Excel, then you like run the macros and we were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like that's not, <laughs> that's not automated. That can, that's still a lot of work. Oh and my God. Like, yeah. Like our computers often like freeze for an hour when we're doing this. And so all to say is I think, you know, since my time at Razorfish over a decade ago, there's like so many, um, there's been so much advancement in technology where you can really automate a lot of that stuff that like, as it should manually do. And most agencies we're, we're working with, most teams we're working with, agencies or client direct, like don't, don't know that or just haven't had exposure to that. And so they're still throwing human bodies at these like, you know, um, problems that are like just lever pulling and like, you know, mindless um, not mindless, but right, like low, low mind, um, mo- yeah. low mind work, um, which is a shame because especially in programmatic, like people are programmatic traders because they didn't want to work on Wall Street. Like you have really smart people who are doing this work and end up spending a lot of the hours of their day, like just grinding. And and I love what you said because um, it's it's all it's not only about perspective, but it's like it's almost like data driven. Um, I just finished, so I train my agency offers programmatic media solutions. That's how I'm calling it now. And part of the solution is not only activation; it's training somebody that's going to be left with the responsibility, training that person to be efficient enough. So that they will not need my agency. I literally fill in the blanks temporarily, help the agency. Right now, agencies are who I'm working with the most. Just like setting them up to do what they're supposed to do the most effective and efficient way. And so very often I come across an agency that is overloading that trader, that buyer with a lot of manually pulling, right? Um, and that trader ends up only averaging what a year and a half to less than two years at that agency because they're tired. They're burnt out. Burnout is a new B word y'all. Like it's real, you know? So it's a myth. I'm going to call it. It's going to, it's the myth from an agency leadership or department leadership. I think the myth that we have to crack is that just because they're traders, they don't need to have they should be able to just pull the report from the platform and then optimize from it. And the data visualization tool should only be given to uh, the clients for it should be client facing only. I think we need to myth the crack that just because an expert is supposed to know the platform, there are to only use that platform from a manual perspective. No, give them the tool so that they can be more efficient. Like they can look at that data visualization tool easily see things and then pull from there if needed so what's your take on that what's your point of view on that welcome to the programmatic meetup yay i'm so excited about this community that we're building it's going to be a safe space for media buyers ad ops uh programmatic ninjas data analysts like you and i you know just to come up and talk about our day-to-day challenges in our direct roles some of, my, some of our wins and some of our um, opportunities to grow. 
to educate ourselves. Some of the topic of discussion includes anything from optimization, best practice, QA, templating, workflow, um, operational workflow. I'll have guest appearance. I'm bringing my network to you. And the best part of it is that you'll have one-on-one -on -one questions with them. Oh, so excited about this, yo. I'm so hyped. Um, so what to expect in your membership, right? Um, you can expect one hour call every first and third Wednesday of the month. Access to all the recordings for the paid members within our community. Um, discounted one-on-one -on -one consulting with me and some of the guests that will be gracing us with their presence and their appearance. Customizable training, but most importantly, new best friends, y'all. I'm very excited about this opportunity. This is a community for you and I. This is a community for us to just join forces and really, really share, really just being able to be together in a community. There's so much growth when you're in a community, when you're able to relate to people, or somebody understands where you're coming from, um, from, from different perspectives, right? So, so join today. Programmatic Meetup our community is open to you. Bring your friends, tell your friends to bring his friends, to bring her friends and his friends to meet up with us. Um, we respect you. We love you. We appreciate you. We're ready to like uh, support you. So make sure you join the programmatic meetup. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. Yeah, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm very excited about this. So thank you so much and see you soon. Yeah, well, I I was surprised. So we're we have a really amazing relationship with an agency who came to us because they were having some pretty serious turnover on in their programmatic um on their programmatic team. Yeah. And we're basically like, um, you know, we think your custom algorithms will help us like optimize and um, replace some of the like manual optimization with, um, you know, with automation, which and we're yeah. like, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. But what we found was like that team didn't even like, op like automating optimization wasn't saving that team much time because that team was so <laughs> entrenched in reporting and billing, which we don't touch, but like, you know, just stuff that is nobody really wants to spend uh, all of their time on. I personally like pulling reports together. Sometimes there's like something satisfying about numbers. It, it is satisfying to pivot the Excel. I'm not going to lie. I'll be like, oh, like yeah. Boom. yeah. Yeah. And now that I'm in a startup, it's like pulling like the financials together and seeing like, oh my gosh, we're going to, we're making money this quarter, like real money. <laughs> really great. But like, I don't think anyone wants to spend six hours doing it in a day. And certainly not when their computer is freezing. And it's just a lot of like pulling from this dashboard to the other, putting them in and the report breaks because there's an extra column. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, so we came to them and we said, you know, like, we could really save you a lot of time on reporting. It's not our core product, but our core product with, with the algorithms is like, we take all of your data we can mm -hmm. merge it and then we consume it to make like the machine learning smart, right? Like learn from your data. Mm -hmm. So if we're, if we're consuming and merging all of your DSP and ad server data, um, and actually for this one, also a creative, um, what are the DCO partners? Like makes sense. creative is part of the whole thing. Like we yeah. tend to forget about them, but they're such as important as anything else. Totally. And really important for like the way that these, um, these campaigns are like viewed and reported and cut, mm -hmm. right? So like we're merging all of that anyway. 
why don't we make you, um, I, we called it the big fucking table, <laughs> like a unified <laughs> table. Love table. It. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, we're like, you guys can make dashboards off of it or we could for you. And they're like, we, yeah, yeah. you know, the agency dashboarding is like not something we can focus on right now. So we're like, okay, great. Like we, so we ended up making them, um, across DSP performance dashboard. So it takes all of the DSP data and like, they have actually like four conversion <laughs> types and they puts all the conversion types and all the DSPs together for every, um, different uh-huh. campaign they have going. Yeah. And, um, and across DSP repacing reports. So they can mm-hmm. look and see across, you know, they have one budget across the three DSPs they work with. So they're like constantly trying to figure out, oh, Amazon is underspending. Can I put that in Google or, you know, who, who's underspending and where and how do I adjust it? So Why? Like all in one, yeah. It's like mm-hmm. all in one place. We use their own spreadsheet for like the budget source of truth. And so anyway, they can see every day, like who's over and underspending and make changes. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And even we're starting to do an SEO project out of it. Because again, we have all of their data all in one place. That makes so much sense. Like supply, like that's, that's where we should be starting. Like supply, yeah. the fundamental, okay. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So, right. So all of this insight that like is sitting there, yeah. it just because no one um, on their side had the experience with APIs and a bit of engineering, no flake for data storage. Like they were still pulling all of the reports from the um, interface and putting it in Excel and like, and they were crushed. They were proud of that process and they should be because they were doing the best with Excel that you could do. Like how you had <laughs> talked about yourself, right? Like in yeah. every great Excel, um, Excel like, way. you know, spreadsheets and like, there's something satisfying about it, but like, you don't have to do that. So, um, so yeah. So anyway, so now we're saving them a lot of time. We've like automated a ton of these reports but it's interesting because a lot of the reports that they're making aren't even for the client. They're for an internal strategy team. And it's like, oh, going back to your point, it's like these traders, they're so smart. They could be, they don't have to replace their strategy team because I'm sure that's important. But like they could be the strategy team too. Like right now they're just making reports for this other team to have the strategy. Like that seems bonkers to me. They're the ones closest to what's going on. Oh man, data-driven strategy. That's what it should be called. Like a trader is a data-driven strategist and can, can implement that actual strategy. Like it's applicable experience. Yeah. And actually, I wanted to bring up. Um, so you wrote an article in Get Exchanger a couple months ago, going yeah. to uh, go live in December. Clink, you can remove that. Um, it's called the article is called "Realizing the True Potential of, um, of Machine Learning Means Getting Outside of Our Digital Advertising Box." And in the article, you quoted, let me find her, Sarah Rose, SVP of International Digital Operation, Data and Platform Ops of at IPG Kineso. First of all, we need to get better with titles. Like, this is so long. <laughs> SVP of International Digital Operation, Data and Platform Ops at IPG's Kineso. Anyway, power to Sarah Rose. Um, right. And she said, Machine learning is the first step in optimized data science applications. So walk us through how somebody listening, either an agency, either in brands, are uh, running things in-house, how can they utilize machine learning? Because I feel like we tend to throw the words, the key phrases, AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning everywhere now. This is AI-driven. This is Emma, you know, but what, how one do we know, like, 
what's your point of view on that when it comes to machine learning and how to best utilize that? Yeah. Well, um, I think the first thing is that you need engineers and data scientists. <laughs> um, so there's an investment because I know you mentioned yeah. earlier that there was an investment um, from a technology perspective, but also from a human perspective. Yeah, totally. Right. Okay. So what you need is the ability to store a massive amount of data. Um, and what is really cool is Snowflake has come onto the scene hot and heavy as an amazing data warehouse. Our um, chief uh, data scientist and CTO, Ken, likes to talk about it as like the steam engine um, revolution. Like he talks about, he worked at Turner and he set up a data warehouse there. And he said, he was like, I rode that thing hard every day. And it took me eight months to stand up another couple months to like really be at revving. And then a team of 15 people to keep it going. Like at Snowflake, we turned on our data warehouse in under two days and we have one engineer working four hours a week to maintain it. Like, wow. I'm not exaggerating that this is a revolution. Yeah. So, I mean, wow. Yeah. And what Snowflake does is it lets you, that's what I understand is the storing of the data is really, really cheap. It's like the querying of that data that gets more expensive. So that's where they make money. So you can store a ton of data. And then if you're smart about how you're like accessing that data or you, you know, using that data, um, it's pretty affordable. So that's the first thing you need. You need the data there. And then the learning part is um, we have a collaboration of data scientists and engineers. So, and even data science engineering. <laughs> so, um, so we have data scientists like run statistical models. I don't know a ton about it, but like basically they'll run um, uh, uh, through, I don't know, like eight different kinds of models. And they look at it and they see like, does this look like we would expect, right? Like we obviously always run a model with a hypothesis, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, our hypothesis is that in this huge data set, six different variables are going to be really important for the outcome we're trying to predict. And that outcome might be um, customer value, right? Yeah. Yeah, They run it through the models and they'll say like, oh, wow, none of these models show anything's predictive. Hmm, something's wrong. And then they go back and they find that like they're uh the data is mapped. It's always like the data is mapped. So um, so right, so they run a bunch of models. There's a lot of like data science, I would call it investigation, kind of like ad hocs. You know, yeah. it's oh wait, this isn't as expected. So either our hypothesis was wrong or the data's, you know, um not bad, but like not in the form that we we expected. It's not usable. So then they go back and they like clean up the data and then they rerun it or they try a different kind of model and they eventually find something usually that's like very, you know, predict, highly predictive. Then they have to take that model and turn it into, for, for programmatic, into a set of instructions for the DSP bidding instructions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they work with the engineering team on that. The engineering team here, I'm, I'm so like the least technical person at Chalice, but like they've built, created a pipeline so that um, it's sort of automated. They pu- push the model through the pipeline, which will then set up bidding instructions for the DSPs. But then there's also, you need human um, sort of oversight there too. So as an example, sometimes like 
if something's less valuable, you think, okay, I'm going to bid down, right? Mm-hmm. But occasionally, if you bid down, you'll actually get a lot more of something. And so you have to, um, right, you have to like set these things in the wild and like keep a close eye, especially in the first couple yep. of days of what's going yeah, on. Makes sense. You have to, right, you have to anticipate some of this. That incremental reach. This is just, it's, it's almost like comparing to like the frequency metrics we use, the less you, the, there are some cases where frequency should be a little bit higher, like in remarketing, but like from a behavioral prospecting perspective, the lower your frequency, the more your incremental reach, because you're targeting not the same person more than once, say, or yeah, right. X amount of frequency. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting um, challenge for us, right? Because we know that a lot of what's going on in advertising right now is like, you know, getting Ellen with a... Um, Ad right before you're about to buy your Peloton bike, you're, it's like yeah. literally the cart page is open in your next tab, yeah. and so and like you know everyone's suddenly remarketing you and whoever like gets that ad in front of you right before you buy it. Sometimes even after you bought it because of like how reporting is you know same yeah. way, yeah. like gets it. And so right, so we we take the stance of like frequencies of ones and over twenties are kind of bullshit. If you have a frequency distribution like that. Like you're wasting a ton of impressions, right? The frequency should be distributed more to the middle yeah. because it does take several ad exposures usually to get someone to change their mind or do something. But right, mm-hmm. but over 20 is like ridiculous. And usually one and done doesn't mean anything happened. So yeah. anyway, I, I like that. I like that um what you said too. And I wanna highlight that in there's like it's super important to understand that there's always an investment to to making things better and that investment will be in return transforming to some level of revenue because you've already taken care of an internal automation and that automation does not replace that human being and that that human being should not expect to be the automation like the we're not robots like you can't expect somebody to 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 replace that automation as well it's like almost a partnership between the two so let's talk about the b word which is burnout oh yeah Uh, man there's so much to talk about i think the pandemic has has been kind of an indicator of how well and how not well we've been taking care of our, our employees, our traders, our AdOps folks. I mentioned earlier in the, the podcast how the average AdOps is like between 12 to 18 months. And I still get across agency leaders that say, well, we don't want to train too much or train outside of their day-to-day because then an ad tech will just steal them away in a year from now. Like it's just very frustrating. But ultimately, I'm like, well, training is part of uh, is an important benefit because you're reinvesting in your in your employee, letting them know, like, I care about your your growth yeah. just as much as my revenue growth. Right. But also, um, why do you think that this is just so hard? Why are ad tech folks filling away agency employees, or rather, what do you think about this term thrown in? about um what is the term i'm looking for the great resignation what what do you think about that yeah yeah well first um i had a wonderful sales enablement um woman on my team at snap Mm. who always started a um 
training for managers on sales enablement with a cartoon and I'll send it to you after maybe. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it basically says someone's like, well, what if we invest all this money in our people and they leave? And uh-huh. then the other person says, well, what if we don't invest in them and they stay? Uh-huh. Right? Like this sort of mindset of <laughs> like, I'm not going to invest in them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, in some ways, I think that jo- jobs that have been like having us like super glued to our computer, super in Excel all day. Um, I once had a nightmare that I was trapped in a spreadsheet, like no kidding. But, you know, like, <laughs> I think when you're doing that at an office, maybe that's like, it's normalized more because you're in a room of everyone doing that. And like, um, you know, any, and if you're meeting to meeting, like just everyone's doing it. I think when you're at home doing it and you're at home doing it where other family members might not be right. Like a lot of people in their twenties went and like lived back with their parents. And I imagine their parents are like, what is this job? You're doing like, you're at the, you know, you're like glued to the, you know, um, I think it's called, right. Like it's a much bigger contract. And I think that's part of it, right? I think just generally too, um, uh, right? Everyone's stress level has been heightened all around. And then I wouldn't say workplaces have ignored what's going on more broadly, but there's certainly when I, um, when the pandemic started, I was still at my last company and there was this like very clear, like even like almost panic of like, we have to make sure everyone is working really efficiently and like is, you know, we had like morning and afternoon stand up to check in at the beginning of the day and out at the end of the day oh, to make sure God. everyone reported on what they were doing, even oh, up yeah. to the executive level. And it was just like, right. I think it, you, you know, you start to see the priority, um, that what I want to say. Yeah. You just start to see everything in like yeah. really high contrast. Um, and it, yeah, I can imagine people are are burning out. Yeah, I mean, again, it goes it's the whole conversation, right? It's like, how do we make sure our people are taken care of from an unselfish position, and it's from an unbiased position. It's hard because biases are very personal, and opinions are very personal, in my opinion. And and sometimes the definition of growth is very different, but every single time. I've worked with an agency again. I um I uh what is the word? I pride myself in like being able to assess, okay, this is a pain point for the agency client or agency partner. Here's how here's a potential solution we need to start testing. And number one thing I, I offer is like training, period. Like somebody is gonna get trained <laughs> because I can guarantee that you will take some of this training and implement and I can provide the type of um, documentation. Sometimes it's literally just documentation based on the errors I've made in my lifetime. And those documentation, those processes are going to help that human feel better about what they do from a day-to-day basic. But literally like what I focus on, like the vision is making the, the, the team happy. The happy team is a productive team and a productive team brings results to your, your company. So how do you make sure that you keep that individual happy? And I, I really like the the content you post on LinkedIn, um, especially recently you posted something about your um, 
your weekly wrap up, I think. It was like, yeah. what was it, an internal team? We call it weekly wrap party. Uh-huh, wrap party. What are those? Tell us. Yeah, it's actually inspired by a marketing partner we have. They call it um, decompress. Oh. The idea is like, yeah, at the end of the week, we all come together. Huh? And we usually have like, you know, um, chalices full of beer or wine or you know, whatever. <laughs> I love it. A chalice. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we're actually sending out like a special chalice to employees who go above and beyond so they can bring it to the wrap party. But anyhow, we um so we always discuss weekly highs and lows and um and our goals for the next week. Mm-hmm. Um and then we usually have like a topic to discuss as a team. So one of the recent ones was like, where do we think we'll be in six months? Oh nice. Um, another was like what is psychological safety, a term I learned at Google? Um, and like, how do we, how do we make our workplace psychologically safe? Mm, and, um, and yeah, if people don't know, psychological safety is basically the ability to show up as your authentic self at work and, um, and feel that that is like accepted and welcomed. Mm. Um, and it's, it's an interesting topic because um, actually, so I was at Google, we went through Google management training. And they found that psychological safety was the number one um, contributor to high-performing teams. Wow. So because they felt like they could be truly themselves, like inside out, and they performed yeah. the bill well, it makes sense. Like your your identity is recognized and it's valued. And so will be your opinions and your creativity. Yes. Yes. Psychologically safe teams take risks and risk-taking equals innovation. And if oh. you aren't taking risks because you don't feel safe, Mm-hmm. You're not innovating. Yeah, you you become a yes man, a, a, a fake robot, like I call them, because now you're just trying yep. to get to the end of the day. Oh my gosh, I love that. Um, <laughs> and how do you implement this bomb? Uh, I think it's a really great vision, but how do you implement this in your recruiting? Like, oh. how what do you look for to make sure that okay, this this person may 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 not have all the skills that we need, but there will be a great fit. Because like, I feel like when we talk about diversity, um, equality, and inclusion on that DEI subject, it's, it's thrown away such as, oh, it, it may not have the, the, it may not fit the culture. And I don't always agree with that phrase. I'm like, well, the culture is, is the, the diversity of the people, <laughs> in my opinion. But again, that could, could be. So how do you bring this, this uh, into your recruiting or as much as you can share? Yeah, no, I'm happy to. I so first off, we are not a um, shining light on this yet. Uh-huh. We're ten person company, and eight of them are They're white. Dope. In the first year and a half, what two years now? That's great. Ten people in two years—that's amazing. It's neat. yeah. Thank you. It's been great growth. Yeah, um, but we've done. I think what what typically companies uh, do, especially startups, and uh, right, which is like you end up kind of hiring from your network. Right, you. It feels like every hire is um, so critical because you know they're all a big new cost on the balance sheet, yeah. and, and also you need them to like execute. Like usually, you're hiring because you're winning business, and you like need yeah. someone who's going to execute or build. You know, the next stage of the engineering pipeline. Mm-hmm. So then you end up sort of um, going with people who you reputationally know, mm-hmm. or someone reputationally knows because. Yeah. And, and and then it all like 
it becomes too close because your networks are never as diverse as what's out there in the human world, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I brought this up at our last board meeting. Our board meeting is me, Ken, and Adam, the co-founders. So it's funny that we have a board meeting because we're like the three of us talk all the time. But I said, like, I brought it up in the board meeting, right? So yeah. like, hey, this time I was the only woman, like, um, you know, the, at the company. It's like, guys, like, we we have to figure this out. And they're like, they're both like so progressive and so yeah. inclusive that like, it felt awkward bringing it up to them because I know like from a baseline, like that it's something we're all committed to, mm-hmm. but I still brought it up. And then I felt great after because Ken's yeah. like, oh, they were hiding a data science. He's like, you'll be happy, Allie. I found a woman who's just amazing. Yeah. I'm like, well, I'm happy you found anyone who's amazing. I'm very glad she's a woman. <laughs> and I think like he, obviously he still would have, um, found her and hired her, but I think oh, great. just like making it just raising the level of intention, even up slightly. Yeah. Is important. And then I've been given a few new resources. Um, I forget the names of them off the top of my head, but like places you can actually go to post jobs, um, to reach like a more diverse audience, because this is the other piece is like data science and engineering, we've hired off of LinkedIn and LinkedIn barely gives us any diverse candidates. And I think that is an algorithm problem, right? Like they're looking for, oh, you know, Chalice needs um, a data scientist and it like surfaces data scientists that are probably like in our networks or in our industries. And those are people who aren't usually not of a hugely diverse set because like the industry is already not diverse. So, so it's really, anyway, it's really hard. I think we're doing what we can. Um, And then I think in the process, it's really about letting, like showing, I think that you're going to, that you accept the person as they are even in the interview. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. And then we just ask, I think, good questions. Um, Yeah. So it is hard to recruit and be mindful and intentional when it comes to diversity, DEI. And um, so you'll share some of the resources to inter- in terms of where to maybe post the jobs to hire a different, um, a different, uh, a diverse talent pool. And um, lastly, before we go into the closing segments, I just wanted to maybe ask you for like wisdom here what would you say if somebody is in this situation where either talent or their manager or manager is in a situation where I feel like my team is not there anymore what are like maybe three things they can start implementing like yesterday um from a not even investment perspective because yes guys you'll have to invest y'all gotta invest you gotta invest in people but from like a what are those three things they can do and implement right now? Is it like a, a party wrap up at the end of the week? But we're on Zoom all day. Like you're not a Zoom call, you know? So what yeah. are three things like, what would Ali do? So I got um, a really awesome job at Google to run um, the like strategy and operations for mm-hmm. their brand team. And the first thing I did was sit down with almost everybody in the, um, in that area of the company and did like a 20 minute meeting. Sorry. No, no problem. Hydrate y'all. Butter is, is, is good. 
water is good. Yeah. You always see me chugging my water. <laughs> 20 minute meeting. And my two questions were, what is the most rewarding part of your job? What is the least rewarding part of your job? Oh, wow. And I would learn so much. And I would set it up as like, I, you know, um, basically like you guys are my clients. Like I don't serve clients outside of the company now. I serve internal clients and you're it. I'm not going to be able to solve everything you have, but I am having conversations like this across the whole organization. I'm looking for patterns. I'm going to try and solve what I think is the priority. Like what is the most rewarding part of your job? What's the least rewarding? And I would get such rich information. I would bring it back to the leadership that I was working with and they would just be like stunned, right? Um, Sometimes even just, they like sort of felt it or knew it, but they didn't have like the concrete, you know, data behind it. Mm -hmm. So I would start there, like listening tour, not like a one-on-one where you kind of, you know, how's it going? Like really pointed what's rewarding, what's not rewarding. And you'll find you'll find out really quickly what's not rewarding employees. And usually it's something that could be handled. Mm-hmm. If um, I think a lot of times, you know, we only solve problems that we know how to solve. So I think sometimes the next thing I would do is, you know, kind of take that and talk to some other leaders about what you're facing to see if they have creative solutions. Maybe they'll point you to chalice, you know, but like, the, you know, the, um, I think like, you know, we end up um, letting, letting things go on for a long time because we don't know how to solve them. And you have to take problems outside of your like little bubble. And we Um, don't know how to ask for help. Like we think it's like, oh my gosh, just ask for help. You'll live so much better. (laughs) Right. Sleep at night. Just ask for it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And then I think, yeah, I think time as a team that is nothing, not nothing to do with work because our weekly wrap party is like about highs and lows, usually work highs and lows and usually like goals for at work for the next week. But it's in a way that's not about to-do lists and getting things done. We also, um, the intention is that we will occasionally go back six months and like review the notes from the wrap-up oh, party. Cool. Well, document, yeah. Yeah, so um, I think that's important. I think it's important to hear that from your colleagues, like what's happening. Um, I think definitely when people feel in it together, there's a much you know greater desire to stay in the team you're in, right? To continue to um, be in your tribe. Um, and also right, feel less, feel less lonely or um, more empowered to work together on solutions for things. I love that because... Um we had to recap your conversation it would be like ask your ask your people and listen what's working and what's not working about your day-to-day job i think that i think that can take us a long way so so long do you remember any interesting thing that was shared in terms of like what was what is not working that maybe could come across like this should be working like this should work but the person did not receive it that way oh i see right um yeah, I would say um, when we engage with this with this um, agency that we're working with a lot, uh-huh. um, that the, there was a woman there who was on her way out. Like she was had greatly res- resigned to a new role, yeah, yeah. Um, and but she was there, like you know, in her last two weeks managing the transition. 
And her team was like, right, like this reporting stuff isn't working. We're like, we can automate it. And she was just very much like, it's already automated. Um, Right. Because from her point of view, an Excel sheet with macros is is automation. And, um, And I really feel like if she, you know, she weren't, if she were the decision maker, like we would have, it would have been like, okay, we, you know, uh, putting it in Snowflake and having engineering resources that query it and pull it into Tableau. Like, yeah. I don't think she would have seen that that like closed any gap for for her team. And I think it was not because she wasn't listening to them, but because she was so attached to what she created. Yeah. You know, and she couldn't. It's very hard when you create some, you build, you build something beautiful, and then someone comes along and says, you know, I can make some, you know, something three times as high for half the cost. Just simply just because now the technology enables that, yeah, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, I do think even leaders get attached to the way things are and don't even see that that's a blind spot, right? Um, if you are in this situation and you're not a big fan of change, okay, you should read the book, Who Moved My Cheese? Um, <laughs> and you'll... you'll you'll get it. You'll understand why change is so important and pivotal in anyone's growth, life, personal, professional, whatever it is. So Who Moves My Cheese by Spencer Johnson. Yes, I will add to the reading list. If you're a leader trying to manage change and you're finding a lot of resistance in your team, you should read a book called Switch by Dan and and Chip Heath. Um, It is a book that I have given to um, all of my teams who've worked for me and with me in the last four jobs, which, and then wait, just cause this is really fun. Yeah. And can our third co-founder, when we're raising our first investment raise, he's like, yeah. I think we should, um, I think we should, you know, take our pitch and rehearse it with my friend Chip. So I'm like, okay. And then he's like, I'm going to put you in touch with Chip. And then he sends the email and it's Chip Heath, this guy whose book I've been handing out to people. Oh my gosh. That is so dope. <laughs> pen, pen. Like, hold up, <laughs> hold up, just pause. <laughs> he's like my business book idol. Like, anyway, it's really funny. So he's an investor in Chalice now. Yeah, nice. I would recommend it regardless. Um, yeah. It's a really great book about. Oh my gosh, I, I'm I'm a bookworm, so I'm gonna add that to my book uh, my book list. Right now, I'm reading a Jim Quick Limitless, and I feel like, dang, this book I'm gonna have to reread right after. So yeah. I'm probably going to be reading this book, Limitless, until the end of the year. But Switch is definitely going to be the next one on my on my list. I think it, it'll be super dope. I love I love anything change. I'm really good when it comes to change. I'm, I'm a risk taker. Matter of fact, my husband is always like, yo, you take the risk. You tend to jump and then you don't even know where you're going to fall. Like you got to <laughs> calculate certain stuff. You don't have to take too long before jumping. You can still jump, but at least be careful. Is it the floor? Is it the, the water? Where, where are you jumping to? And I'm always like, I'm just going to jump. So he's the one who just reels me in. Like he's, he'll have like the, like in cartoons, you know, he'll have like the, the fishing pole, just like, hold up. Let me just reel her in a little bit on this one before she crashes her face. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for dropping by. You know, can you share one fun fact before we, we stop the, the recording? I mean, we end the conversation. Yeah. Um, fun facts. You have to ask me what they are though. Like, am I supposed to? Yeah. Fun. What's what's one fun fact about yourself that people may not know? Ha ha ha. Ha ha Um I uh swim every week off the coast of Coney Island and Brighton Beach. Oh wow. Um, at least 
I am trying to do that through the whole winter. So like last week, I did it. It was 30 degrees out. It was in very intense. Oh, oh <laughs> outdoor um, swimming. Outdoor swimming, yeah. It, it, out on the beach. Is like there, with, um, along the shoreline. <laughs> is there a reason why you want to do this? Just personal? I love, I love the ocean. I love open water swimming. And I thought um, Google sent me to Australia for a quarter. And that's where I like learned that I lived on the beach and I swam every day. I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to move to LA to like keep this going. And then yeah. I realized that off of Brooklyn, there's some really good swimmable beaches. And it's wow. like a five minute drive from my house to the beach. Mm-hmm. So um, my apartment to beach. So, um, so yeah, I've just decided like, I just got to have to do it every week. It's my I'm thing. I'm and- my head because I'm like, yeah, I, I love open water and the beach. I'm a beach girl too. Um, originally from Senegal, which is uh, on the east, on the west coast of the African con- continent. And we're, we have a lot, we are be- there's beaches everywhere. It's the coastline. Yeah. But I, I don't have your courage. I, I don't, I'm not going to do that in, in winter, 30 degrees. It has to be like age 90 degrees outside for me to get into like 70 degrees <laughs> type of water. And then I'll be like, oh my gosh, this is too cold. I can't do it. I'll come back later at noon when it's hotter. Uh, so power to you. This is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how long through the winter I can go. But um, it's my experience. In January and February. We believe in you. I think we can do it. You can do it. We believe in you. I'm going to do it. There's no yeah. stopping. <laughs> no stopping. Well, thank you so much for dropping by. This was such a fun conversation. Um, we really appreciate Ali and the team at Chalice. So if anybody wants to uh, continue the conversation, potentially work with you, where should they go? Yeah, they could go to chalice.ai on the web and we have like a form, but even better, um, you can email me Ali, A-L-I at chalice.ai. Sweet. And her information would be in the show notes and then any resources or uh, documents that you shared as well, including the book will be in the show notes. So thank you so much. Thanks, Alan. It was great talking with you. A lot of fun. Yeah. Feel free to grab today's conversation and show notes, including our guest information on our website, programmaticdigest.com, programmaticdigest.com. See you next week and stay curious, my friend.